This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester. Good morning. You can take a seat. My name is Will Chester. I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. And I wanted to begin this morning by talking uh, about a sober reality that I've been noticing, that there is a deep and profound and widespread confusion in our day about the times that we are living in. Because I was raised up to believe that you do not begin the celebration of Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Am I right? That's when you start, and not a moment sooner. It doesn't matter what color the cups are at Starbucks. It doesn't matter what Target starts doing on November 1st. That's when the Christmas celebration begins. And if you're really hardcore, you don't start it till December 25th, but nobody does that, so. Um, But lately, I've been hearing something else. I've been hearing people make excuses, and they say, look, man, it's 2020. It's been hard. I need this, okay? I need the lights. I need the trees. I need Michael Buble. What are you going to do? Well, speaking of times of the year, today is a special day in the life of churches like ours because we follow the church calendar, which is different than the January to December calendar that most of us are used to. And in our church calendar, today is the last Sunday of the year. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent, so that's the beginning of the church year. It's a really exciting time. So today is kind of like, you know, New Year's Eve. We're reflecting on the year. And the church has recently started calling this Sunday the Feast of Christ the King. Christ the King, a a day for, for thinking about the future that awaits all of us when we will stand before Christ in His second coming where He is fully revealed as our King. And so that's what our passage this morning was about, towards the end, the very end of Matthew's gospel. And, you know, Matthew challenges us to believe something both incredibly great and incredibly small. He challenges us to believe that this epic event is going to happen, where where we, along with all of the nations, everybody who has ever lived, will be gathered together in one place before Christ seated on the throne. That's the great reality that Matthew puts in front of us, which is especially bold if you think about it. I mean, Matthew's writing his gospel when, when Jesus is unknown in the world. It's not like it is today. What a bold claim for him to say that this, this crucified man is our king, our cosmic king. But he also challenges us to believe something very small, which is that the most important things that you and I will ever do in this life, the most important things are so small and insignificant, they will not even be remembered by us. We will have to be reminded of them. The passage revolves around this incredible statement, whatever you have done unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Christ the King. Christ the prisoner, Christ the sick, Christ the hungry, Christ the Lord. So that's what we want to meditate on this morning. And we want to meditate on these, these two images that we get. The first is of Christ our judge. It's uncomfortable for many of us. And then Christ as the Lord of the least. 
Christ our judge and Christ as the Lord of the least. So if you have your Bibles, we'll begin in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there's a lot of Old Testament imagery packed in here. So let's unpack some of that. So the first is this phrase, Son of Man, this name that, that Jesus gives himself. He's, he's quoting the, the prophet Daniel, who had this vision 500 years earlier that one like the Son of Man would be crowned, would be given this royal dominion over the entire earth. And Jesus says, I am that person that Daniel was speaking of. And then we have these images of glory and angels and a, and a heavenly throne. And what's interesting about this is that throughout the Hebrew scriptures, these images are only associated with God. But here Jesus says they'll be associated with him. They'll characterize his second coming. Jesus is saying that, that he and the Father are one and that he will sit in judgment over the nations. And so here's my first point today, that Jesus is our judge and that that's actually good news. It's good news that Jesus comes to bring judgment. But it doesn't feel that way, does it? I mean, judgment, judgment sounds exclusive. It's, it's not something that we like talking about. It's not something we like thinking about. It's not something that we want to be known for. So we're really comfortable with, you know, this picture of Jesus, you know, when he says, like Matthew and like in Matthew chapter 11, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We like that Jesus. We struggle with the Jesus who says in verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I'm sure most of us would be a little more comfortable if, if we just kind of ignored those passages didn't preach on them. But my question this morning is, would you really want that? Would you really want Jesus without judgment? Because I don't think you would, for at, least, for at least two reasons. The first is this, that a Jesus who speaks about judgment, he, he breaks down these kind of therapeutic visions that we have of God. He breaks down these pictures of God where God is the God that we want him to be instead of the God that he actually is. Jesus is iconoclastic. He breaks categories. And so that's why, you know, you have this great image in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan hears about Aslan the lion and she asks Mr. Beaver, a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, no. He's not safe, but he's good, and he's the king. The Jesus of the Bible is not the kind of God that you or I would invent. He's comforting, but he's also challenging. Sometimes he's confounding. And all of that actually strengthens my faith. It makes him more real. This is not something that, that somebody imagined in their head. This is a person interacting with us even this morning through his word. The second reason that judgment is, is just critical to our understanding of the good news is this, that you cannot have justice without judgment. 
So I asked some of my high school students recently, do you think that we live in a moralistic culture? Do you think we live in a culture that's really, that really cares about right and wrong? And most of the students said, no, I don't think we live in that kind of culture. It's kind of like a, a you-do-you culture, you know? Don't worry about people. Non-judgmental, chill, relaxed. Those are the ideals. Those are the things we praise people for. And I said this. I said, well, what about your Instagram feeds? What did they look like this summer? Because for several weeks this summer, you could not get on Instagram without being bombarded by images and messages relating to racism and policing and the killing of George Floyd. And if, if I went on Facebook today, I would see note after note after note about election fraud and about the dangers of socialism or the dangers of fascism. And what all of this amounts to is a culture that's crying out for judgment, a culture that's crying out for somebody to name right and wrong and to stand up for what's right and true. Our culture longs for justice, which means we need a judge. Last Monday, a five-year-old sitting on, on his couch, playing on his iPad in the Roseland neighborhood of Chicago was shot. The drive-by shooting, a bullet went through the wall. On Wednesday, four others were shot on Roosevelt Road, this same Roosevelt Road, just 25 miles away. And from Friday afternoon to Saturday night, 18 others were shot in Chicago. When you read stories like these, you don't want to live in a world without judgment. You want justice. You want something to be done. You want these perpetrators to be brought before the Son of Man to answer for what they've done. You want our society to answer for what it's done in creating these pockets of poverty where violence is so common that we in the suburbs, we've just gotten used to hearing about it. We're almost unaffected by it. We want answers for that. We want to be brought before a judge. And if you're living in a situation like that, if these aren't just you know, newspaper articles, but these are your sons and daughters, then how can you go to church and trust the psalmist when he says, don't worry about people who do evil. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Don't take revenge. How can those be comforting words? The only way is if this other thing is also true that the psalmist says. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The Psalms are full of petitions. Lord, do something about injustice. And what we have here in Matthew 25 is just that. In the scary picture of the final judgment, we have God finally doing something that is final about evil and death, judging it once and for all. Everyone will be there. And that is good news for anyone who longs for justice. But how will we be judged? Jesus' answer here is surprising. Verse 40, Truly I say to you, 
as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And later he says, and as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's this incredible thing that Jesus is not only our judge, but he is the Lord of the least. That this king arrayed in glory and this angelic honor associates himself with the people that nobody else wants to associate with, with the weak ones of this world, with the despised ones, with the sick and with the incarcerated, with the immigrant. Those are his people. Those are his family. And we're so familiar with this idea that that the poor deserve special attention from us. We're so familiar with this that, that we've lost sight of just how radical this is. So I was reading about this this summer. Tom Holland is a British journalist, and he recently wrote a book called Dominion. You know, he was a, he's a historian. He studies the ancient world, you know, the Spartans and the Greeks and the Romans, you know, the, the so-called, like, foundations of Western society. And he's reading them, and he realizes they don't sound like us. And he writes, it wasn't just the extremes of callousness that unsettled me. Like, it wasn't just the really harsh things that they said. But it was the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. Like, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world that people would kind of puff themselves up by being charitable towards the poor. But it was insane in the ancient world that you would actually have a duty to care for the poor. That it's not just this great thing that you do, but you have to do it that righteousness requires that you do it. He said this was foreign to the, to the Roman world. And so he says, when did we get this idea that the poor deserve our attention? And he realized we got it from the Bible. We got it from this Jewish preacher who drew on his Hebrew background to say that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed, the widow and the orphan and the stranger. God is on their side so much that he says, when you serve them, you serve me. I mean, the closest possible identification. This was unheard of. So these beliefs that we take for granted today, you know, about human dignity and human rights, about there needing to be institutions like public hospitals and public schools, about adoption and the abolition of slavery, those ideas didn't come from nowhere. They didn't arise naturally but they were brought to us through Christianity and the way that Christianity spread throughout the Roman world. We've gotten so used to this, we don't realize that, that the water we're swimming in is thoroughly Christian, regardless of what our religious beliefs are. It's become natural to us. Jesus taught us in sermons like this that the poor are deserving of special attention. And what's amazing about Jesus' teaching on the least of these is its connection to judgment. See, we're used to thinking of ourselves as somewhere in between, like, bad people and good people. So, like, the bad people, you know, the really awful ones who committed horrific injustices, like, they're way over there. We're nothing like them. 
And then the good people, like, you know, the Mother Teresas that just sacrificially give all of their lives, like, we're not really like them either, but of course, we're like kind of closer to their side than, than this side. We're used to thinking of those categories as very far away. And what this passage does is, is it actually brings them in close, uncomfortably close. Here's what I mean. When Jesus describes the actions of the cursed, he doesn't describe like horrific acts of injustice. No, he describes things that you and I do. He describes ignoring the needs of the people around us. And at the same time, when he talks about salvation coming to the blessed, he doesn't describe them as doing these heroic acts like building hospitals and schools. He describes little things, a little cup of water, a plate of food, a hello, a visit. I mean, acts so small, they're not memorable. And so both the blessed and the cursed, they're surprised at the final judgment. It doesn't seem like in the text that they're surprised that they are the righteous or the unrighteous, but they're surprised at Jesus' rationale. When did we minister to you? We don't recall. When did we miss you? And the sobering truth that we face when we face Jesus the King is that we are a lot closer to both heaven and hell than we'd like to believe. And so I want to pause there for a minute, because I know that, that now this can get uncomfortable, right? Because, you know, many of us have had the thought, like, am I going to be surprised at the final judgment? Like, is that what Jesus is talking about here? Am I going to get there thinking that I've been a sheep all along, and Jesus is going to tell me that I'm a goat? Like, can I have any assurances? Is he kind of advocating this, like, works righteousness where you do enough good things and you get into heaven? Am I going to miss out because I didn't do enough of those? And I want to put you at ease. That's not what's happening here. But there is a tension. There is this, this tension between salvation by grace and judgment by works that, that we shouldn't try to get rid of because grace and works, they go together. And you see this in Matthew's gospel. So you look at like Matthew chapter 20. Matthew tell, or Jesus tells this parable about this owner of a vineyard who goes out and has people work for him. And some of these guys are there working all day long, and some of these guys only show up at the very end of the day, but all of them are paid the same wages. It's not based on anything that they've done, it's based on the sheer generosity of God. So that's grace. That's salvation by grace through faith. So how does that fit with what we're looking at this morning? And here's how it fits. What Jesus is saying is that good works and grace, they go together. Good works towards the least of these, it reveals, they reveal grace working in our hearts. And so the the point is not to make you doubt your salvation, but it is this call to introspection. Do your works line up with the incredible grace that you've received? Do your works towards the least of these, whoever they might be, do they line up with the grace that you've received? And we should feel some discomfort in that moment, even if we're confident in our salvation and in the security of our salvation before Jesus who saves us simply through his own generosity. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus make this kind of so scary to look at? 
think Jesus is warning us. Jesus is warning us in the starkest way possible. Don't look for Christ the King where all of the other kings show up. Don't look, don't look for Christ the King in the halls of power. Don't look for Christ the King courting with celebrities. Don't look for him with the beautiful and the rich and the well-dressed and the well-spoken. That's not where he is. But look for Christ the King in the places where you would least expect him, with the weak and the poor and the powerless and the downtrodden. Your salvation depends on it. See, Jesus, Jesus warns us again and again in Matthew's gospel, from the Sermon on the Mount and the beginning of his teaching ministry until this, his last sermon. He's warning his people, be careful about money. Be careful with power. Be careful with beauty. Be careful with the praise that other people give you because all of these things can lead you astray. Don't be fooled. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. So this is our second point. Jesus is the Lord of the least. Look for him there. It's this call to, <clears throat> this call to downward mobility, to a life of humility, which is a hard thing for us to embrace in the Western suburbs because all of us are extravagantly wealthy. And so how do we do this? How do we attune our hearts to seeing and seeking Christ amongst the least of these? If things, I mean, we can do it this very morning. <clears throat> I think it begins with confession. It begins with acknowledging all of the ways that this category of blessedness for us has to do with wealth and status and a certain kind of notoriety that other people give us. Those things have come to define blessedness, but that is not how Jesus defines blessedness. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst and don't have what they want yet. Blessed are they because I'm with them, because what they're seeking is the kingdom. In fact, what they have is the kingdom, and they'll have even more of it. That is blessedness. And so we need to confess when we've lost sight of that. And I think, secondly, we choose to love. And it doesn't start with, with going out and finding the least of these. I mean, if they're in our circles, if, we, if you know who they are in your life, then, then great, please seek them out in service to Christ. But if you don't know who they are, I would suggest start with the people in your home. Because loving the least of these is not easy. And we shouldn't have this kind of romantic picture of Mother Teresa, you know, that it was just kind of this, this easy thing, loving all these sick and hurting people. It is not easy. It is not easy to get in the midst of, of poverty and to serve. And so where do we start? Start with those closest to you because that's where you're gonna develop the character of humility the virtues of humility, the virtues of seeing Christ in the other and even receiving Christ from them. It starts in our homes. It starts in our neighborhoods. It starts in this church, learning to see Christ in the least of these. And here's the comfort that we have, that Jesus sees 
Jesus is not simply this judge who only sees what we don't do, but he sees the good things that we do. I mean, have you ever, have you had this experience where you're just kind of living life and, and somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I've, I just notice you really put your family first. I really appreciate that about you. Or, hey, I just, I noticed that you emptied the dishwasher and that meant a lot. And I wasn't doing that so anybody would notice. I noticed that you said a kind word to your sibling. That really blessed them, and that really blessed me too. I mean, doesn't it feel good to have somebody notice you? Well, that's what Jesus the judge does. At the end of time, he notices the things that you forget. And what this means is that no love in the kingdom of God is ever wasted. You never have to worry, like, am I sacrificing all of this and it'll never be repaid to me? Because Jesus sees And he honors that in you and how good it feels to be honored by the king. And not only does he honor you for for doing this act for somebody else, but he receives it as if you were doing it for him. I mean, there's there's no greater blessing than that. No love is wasted in the kingdom of God. So back to our original question. How do we understand these two pictures of Jesus that we get in this passage? of Jesus the judge on the one hand and the Lord of the least on the other hand. And I think we need to read just two more verses to see how this works. So in chapter 26, it begins, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, when he finished this sermon, he said to his disciples, you know, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Notice this repetition of the Son of Man title. The Son of Man in glory, that same Son of Man that I was just talking about, surrounded by angels sitting on his heavenly throne with billions of people before him, first he's going to be crucified. That's how, that's how the judge and the Lord of the least, that's how these come together in one person. Because before he comes in glory, the Son of Man comes as a baby. And before he's surrounded by angels, he's surrounded by his enemies. Before he sits on his throne, he's nailed to a cross. Before he's crowned as our Lord, he's revealed amongst the least. And before he separates the blessed from the cursed, he opens wide his arms on the cross to receive any who would come to him through faith. That is Christ the King. He's a crucified King. He's a judge who is judged in our place. He's a Lord of the least of these. And the King invites you today. He invites all of you today, just as he will on that day. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.